0: of the book on 101.9 High FM. This is Stephen Kravitz, people of the book. It's our second show for 2018. And we've got a wonderful show lined up. We've got an author interview from Cape Town and we're going to start straight with that and we'll get to other books in the second half of the show. I'd like to welcome onto the, the line from Cape Town a good friend of mine. Rabbi Matthew Liebenberg. Welcome to Chai FM. Thank you. Good
1: morning, Stephen, and good morning to your listeners. Uh,
0: Just to tell everybody, I have a long history with Matthew. We were roommates in Yeshiva. We studied together for many years. And uh, after we graduated, Rabbi Matthew took a position in Cape Town. He went down to the Schoonda Street Shul, that's the round shul that used to be just above the City Bowl in Cape Town. And then from there, for the last 15 years, he's been the rabbi at what was first the Claremont Hebrew Congregation and the Claremont and Weinberg Hebrew Congregation. He's also the, the chairman of the Cape Rabbinic Association, and he's the chairman of the board of the Phyllis Joel School. He's become one of the pillars of the Cape Town Jewish community. And he and his wife, Lee, hold a lot of the infrastructure in Cape Town in place. Valuable, invaluable people who are doing unbelievable work in Cape Town, teaching Torah, bringing people closer to, to Torah, and educating the community. It's a great privilege to have you on the show, Rabbi Matthew, and to discuss your book, which you've just published, called "Wisdom from the South." And we do have a copy that we'll give away during the course of the show to one of to a very lucky listener here on Chai FM, Rabbi Matthew why one more book on the weekly Torah portions? You've subtitled your book An Eclectic Collection of Essays on the Weekly Torah Portion. Why do we need one more?
1: Thanks Stephen and thank you for the, the wonderful and generous uh, words and introduction. So of course this is a question that's been asked of me and I think uh, i touch on it a little bit in the introduction to the book. But let me say as follows that um, in the last year, I read a very interesting quote that goes back to the Middle Ages by a uh, Rabbi Yosef Shlodon Dolmedigo, one of our great uh, scholars in Italy, and he made the point that the, the printing press was not such a great boon to the Jewish people, even though everybody thinks it was, because in days gone by, before the printing press, if you wanted to publish a book, it had to be handwritten, and that cost an enormous amount of money for scribes, etc., And uh, when the printing press came along, that meant that every Tom, Dick, and Harry could simply publish a book and it would be cheap, and therefore uh, bad books would also hit the market. So when I read those words, I was a little bit troubled. Exactly your question, why do we need another book on the Pasha? And I think that uh, this is the justification. First of all, a lot of people asked me to write the book. I've been writing essays on the weekly Pasha now since I began in the, the rabbinate. I just reached number 800. And many congregants, friends and family said you have to put something into print. And you know, when congregants ask you to do something, you have to, you have to do it. So, so that was the first reason. The second reason, and this really touches upon the title of the book, Wisdom from the South, is that uh, a lot of the, the Torah literature that we're seeing in English is from America. Uh, I have no problem with that. That's fantastic. But that reflects a certain type of Yiddish kats of Judaism that we see in America that is very particular to the American market. There isn't that much coming out of South Africa. We have seen in the last decade or so a few South African authors, including our very own chief rabbi, Dr. Warren Goldstein, but there isn't that much. So I thought that we could add something that had a little bit of a flavor, South African flavor, uh, hence the title uh, Wisdom from the South. And uh, there's another reason also why I thought it was important to to publish this, because really it's a, a collection of essays and sermons that I've given, and that is that it would serve as a type of a historical record. I have in my library a number of books written by rabbis throughout the 20th century, some of them going back to the period before and after World War II, some of them going to the period of the 60s, and it's fascinating to see what religious leaders were speaking about in those days. It's a a historical record. So I want people to be able to go back and say, well, what were the rabbis in South Africa at the beginning of the 21st century speaking about? What was relevant? What was on their minds? And this would be a uh, a historical record going forward. So I think those are some of the major reasons why I felt it was necessary to to publish this book, which is not just another book on the Parshat HaShavua.
0: You've touched on the title, Wisdom from the South, but uh, there's more to, there's more significance to the title just than just that fact that you're writing from South Africa. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yes, yeah so it's very interesting that um that i've been planning this book for a long time and i think that i wrote the introduction about six or seven years ago and it just sat on my computer and i came up with this title so of course it was something that came from south africa from the southernmost tip of south africa cape town and as one of my congregants added from the southern suburbs of cape town but it in fact is based upon a passage in the Talmud. And the Hebrew name of the book is meaning uh, a person who wants wisdom should turn to the south. The context of that passage in the Talmud is a person who is uh, saying the Amidah, the Shemona Esra, the main prayer of our daily prayer. And of course we know that we have to face towards Israel, towards Jerusalem, whatever part we are in the world, whether it's to the, the east or the west or the north or the south. However, the Talmud says something very interesting, that a person who desires wealth should face towards the north, should incline his body a little bit towards the north, and a person who wants wisdom should incline his body a little bit to the south. And the way to remember this is that the, the menorah, the holy candelabra in the Atom in the temple, was situated on the southern wall. And that represented the lot of Torah, in particular, the Oral Torah. And uh, the Talmud, in fact, comes to the conclusion that you should always incline your body a little bit to the south, because uh, if you have wisdom, you'll also have good health and wealth, etc. So the idea being that we can have wisdom coming even from the south. It doesn't have to come necessarily from the great Torah centers of the north or from to Israel, but it can come here from our very own South Africa
0: this book as I suppose all books are was a very personal journey for you what was that journey
1: so it's it's, uh, it's been a long time in in the making this book as I mentioned previously I've been writing essays on the weekly Pasha for a long time we have here in my shul my current shul and my previous shul a weekly Shabbos newsletter as most shuls in South Africa as many shuls in the world have and those shul, shul newsletters have different features to them, wishing people muzzle tov, and uh, times of services, what's coming up in the week. And of course, there's usually a divide Torah. There's, there's something about the Parsha. A lot of people extract information from the, the Internet, and uh, they borrow from other rabbis. Again, I've got no problem with that. But from the outset, my goal was always to write an original essay. That would be something that would flow out of my learning. I'd learned the past of the week. I'd seen something interesting in one of the commentaries and I would build an essay around that. And I've been doing that now for, for more than 18 years. And, uh, in the middle of that period, as I said, maybe about eight, nine years ago, I got this idea to write a book. Other people encouraged me and I began to do it. Uh, I uh, opened the file on my computer. I had the name of the book, I had the introduction to the book, but of course the one thing that I didn't really have was time. I didn't have time, and uh, I was busy with all of my, my rabbinical work and my community work and my family, and I came to the realization that uh, I would never have time, and I had to make time. So I took the plunge, and I called uh, the publisher, absolutely credible lady, Batsha in uh, in Johannesburg, and I said, to her, what does it take to write a book? And this goes back some two years ago, and we got into the discussion, and she told me what was involved, and of course there was a cost involved, and I had to do fundraising, and that's when I started. I think we initially set a time goal of one year, but it turned out to be closer to two years with the editing and the publishing. So this has been a very, very long, arduous project, a labor of love, but uh, I'm very, very thankful now that it's uh, come to fruition and that we've really produced an incredible and very handsome product.
0: It's a beautiful book with a wonderful cover. We'll be back with more questions to Rabbi Matthew Liebenberg about his book Wisdom from the South straight after this ad break.
1: People of the Book on 101.9 High
0: FM. We'll be back on, uh, in an interview with Rabbi Matthew Liebenberg. It's just published... A book called Wisdom from the South, an eclectic collection of essays on the weekly Torah portion. It is available in Johannesburg in the Kolal bookshop. And uh, we've just heard why Rabbi Matthew feels we need another book about the Pasha. And he's got very, very, very compelling reasons. The significance in the title and also his personal journey in getting the book written and then published another general question I'd like to ask you, what main principles underpin your essays and your droshes?
1: So of course uh, the first one, as I mentioned, is that it had to be original. That was number one. Number two is that uh, by and large I tried to speak on issues that were relevant at the moment. What was going on in the world? What was going on within the, the Jewish community? And what did the Torah have to say about those topics? Another principle which I thought was very, very important was to include references so that people could use this as a a catalyst for further study. These are not complicated essays. These are very readable to the layperson. But if a scholar wanted to go further, they would be able to look at those references and say, ah, I see that this is mentioned in the Talmud, this is mentioned in the Midrash, and I could take it a step further. And I think the main thing was that it was originality and that it was something that was relevant something that was wisdom for our times, not not something that was merely an explanation on the Parsha, but what does the Parsha have to say about contemporary
0: society I love your articles are very, very contemporary, uh, when I was reading through the topics that you discuss, it's very very, very contemporary but you also have a number of essays that look back to the great achievers of, of previous generations, which also is a wonderful thing to include. In an essay entitled Physical Needs, Spiritual Glory, you highlight the towering Torah giant, Rabbi Israel Salanta. You write very inspiringly, It's very important for us today in the modern 21st century to have heroes that we can look to from the past. Can you share your awe for Rav Solanta with us?
1: I think that uh, Rav Yusuf Solanta was one of the towering figures of Lithuanian Jewry. He was the founder of the Musa movement. And uh, there's a saying that is attributed to Rav Yusuf Solanta that he has come not to reform Judaism, but to reform Jews. He didn't want to change the religion, but he wanted to produce really what would be a supermensch. And he began this Muslim movement. And people speak of Ravi Yusuf as a prince amongst men. He looked regal. He always dressed beautifully, modestly, but beautifully. He was well groomed. He was beautifully spoken. And uh, there's another thing that's also important is that you can see how great a person is by his students. He produced so many outstanding rabbinical scholars who were his students, including Rob Eliezer Gordon of Tells. And uh, he was a person who was a master of the spirit, a master of, of ethics. And anybody who met him, whether it was a religious person, whether it was an anti-religious person, they were immediately impressed by him. So I thought that he was certainly a character that had to be included uh, in the pages of the book.
0: When reading an essay on Parshat Acharemos, I was taken back 20 years to when we were in Yeshiva together, sitting in the late Rosh Hashiva, Rav Azul Chaim, Golfan's Shurim, Daily Gomorrah Shurim, and his famous rousing call when he would say, New Gentleman Levitic, you, you connect that, which is very, a very powerful memory, I think, for all of us who were there, um, to the verse in that Pasha vachai Behem. could you elaborate on our on this for our listeners so they can listen in on some of the pools of wisdom that you share in your book?
1: Yes, so it's, a, it's a very famous verse where the, the Torah says, vachai Behem, you shall live through the mitzvot, and uh, the Talmud gives a very well-known statement on that by him meaning that they should be the source of your life and not the source of your death. That if you're given the option of dying or breaking a mitzvah, so you have to you have to break the mitzvah rather than die, so that you can live to do mitzvot in the future. But what I quoted there was a was a comment that came from the the Kodosh, one of the the great commentators, and he says that what the Torah means for him is that you must inject life into your performance of mitzvot. They shouldn't be bland. They shouldn't be robotic. They shouldn't be automatic. It should have a chios. It should have a life in it. That there should be a uh, an animation to the way in which we serve God. And uh, that's what uh, our late Shashiva of Blessed memory, Rabbi Golfan, was like. We would sit in his shirim, we would sit in his lectures, learning the Talmud, and if everybody was just sitting there looking down into the pages and not answering the questions, this was uh, irritating for him. Uh, it really wasn't the type of atmosphere that he wanted in the shir whatsoever. He wanted people to be animated. And uh, the Torah, of course, we said in our prayers, ki, ki that the words of the Torah are our life. They're meant to animate us, and that's what he wanted. That's what the wanted. You should be lively, fellows. You should uh, You should wake up. So I thought that that uh, particular message of the Shema really resonated with me because it reminded me of those days in Yeshiva where the Rosh Hashiva called on us to, to live a life that was animated by the tribe, that was lively, that wasn't just uh, a Judaism by rote.
0: You, 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 you bring that time back very very much, very much to life on the page for me, uh, reading the book. Uh, on Parshas Vayeshev, you write about complacency. And your message is a very powerful one. Very topical now that holidays are coming to an end and everyone is grumbling about having to go back to work. Can you share another pool of wisdom on this topic, the Yeshiv and complacency?
1: Sure, sure. This is also a message that we heard often from from Rabbi of Blessed Memory. And uh, the beginning of the Parsha begins by telling us that uh, that Jacob uh, came to rest. He he settled. And uh, Rashi has a very, very harsh... Criticism of Jacob, which he takes from the Sages, that uh, Jacob wanted to to have a rest. You know, he had had a tough life. He had a confrontation with his brother, with his father-in-law. He had difficulty with his wife and his children, and he just wanted to take it easy. And uh, Hashem in heaven, so to speak, said, "You want to take it easy." Uh, is that the way of the righteous in this world? You have an incredible reward in the world to come. But you want to take it easy in this world? And immediately after that, he had the difficulty with Joseph, with Joseph disappearing. And uh, the thrust of that message from our sages is that this isn't the world to sit back, to take a break, to retire, to take it easy. This is the world of action. This is where we have to produce. We've got to be busy all of the time. Of course, every now and again you have to take a break, you have to recharge your batteries. We've just had the, uh, the December holidays. If we wouldn't have a break, we wouldn't be able to, to work, to function in the year to come. But at the same time, we have to realize that uh, it's in the next world that we have a rest, and that this is the world of action. And uh, unfortunately, we see from our sages that whenever somebody came to rest, whether it was Jacob, whether it was the Jewish people, there's a tradition, that this was always followed by some tragedy. Because we have to be on the move all of the time. We have to be developing. We have to be growing. We can't reach perfection, but we always have to be aiming for perfection.
0: These are great, great ideas. We're speaking to Rabbi Matthew Liebenberg. He's the Rabbi of the on Weinberg Hebrew Congregation in Cape Town. And he's also the author of a book called Wisdom from the South, an eclectic collection of essays on the weekly Torah portion. They, some of them are very timely some of them are timeless they range on all topics immediate topics that we have to deal with in our modern south african state or in the world today but also some ideas that are classic ideas that span all time and they are uh, gems gems of wisdom we'll be back with a few more questions with rabbi liebenberg straight after this ad break People of the Book, on 101.9 High FM. We've been in conversation with Rabbi Matthew Benberg from Cape Town, talking about his new book, Wisdom from the South, in Hebrew, Harot Yachim Yadrim. It's available in the Kola Bookshop here in Johannesburg. It's also available in bookshops in Cape Town as well. And we've got time for a few more questions with Rabbi Me- with Rabbi Matthew. Thank you for your time. It's been absolutely wonderful hearing about your book and some of the pearls of wisdom that you've included in the in the pages of this of this of this wonderful book. Some of your essays are very topical and deal with ethical issues that will always be topical, such as accountability and leadership. I was captivated by an essay called "Superhero," which was a springboard to leaders and role models now in South Africa, with the change in ANC party leadership, leadership and accountability is once again an urgent topic facing our country. Your your thoughts on that?
1: A hundred percent. So that particular essay is one of my favorites in the books. And what I was really interested in is the fact that recently Hollywood has been releasing many, many superhero films. They're too numerous to name. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Avengers—it just goes on and on and on. There's an endless appetite for films about people with powers, people who are superhuman. And this got me thinking—you know—why do we have such an obsession with the with the superhuman personality? And one possibility—and this is something that I that I try to indicate from verses—is that we've lost our faith in human beings. We've lost our faith in human beings. We don't have role models anymore. We look at political leaders, they're corrupt. We look at sports people, and uh, they're involved in in drug taking. We look at people involved in uh, in the arts and culture world, and there's so many problems there, drugs and uh, marriages that don't work. Who are the role models that we have to look up to? So we create a superhuman. We create somebody who's got special abilities, who isn't normal and we put them on a pedestal. And uh, indeed, this is one of the, uh, the biggest challenges that we're facing in the world today, whether it's in the Jewish community or the general community, who are going to be the next leaders? And what i showed from the book is that a person doesn't have to be a superhero. They don't have to have incredible abilities to be a role model. One of the examples I used was the, the man who used to play Superman, Christopher Reeve. He was in a number of Superman movies. And uh, one of the incredible ironies is that he was paralyzed in a horse riding accident and he could not move his body from the neck down. But it was from that moment that he became a real superhero, even though he couldn't wear the Superman costume anymore, because he opened this incredible organization to help people with spinal injuries. So that you could have somebody sitting in a wheelchair, and yet he was a complete inspiration. Another example that I use was Rav Nosenzi Finkel of the Mir Yeshiva who passed away just a few years ago, blessed memory. And Rabbi Finkel built the Mir Yeshiva into uh, one of the greatest Yeshivas in the world with several branches. He raised all of the money, he built all of the new buildings, and for most of his life he was afflicted with Parkinson's. His hands shook terribly, he couldn't speak properly, and and look what he did. This is somebody that we should uh, hold up. So we have to search out for those heroes and uh, we have to try to do something for our youth to try to develop them into into the leaders of tomorrow.
0: Very, very important words, powerful words. <laughs> Going back to school, I know next week, it's something that I think everyone in education and in community should uh, look to see how we can take that message and teach it to to our students. An essay called Affluenza on Parshas Akev also caught my eye. Can you share the Torah approach that you distill so clearly, as this is another burning issue of our times?
1: When I was reading through uh, the Parshat Hashavua, and especially in the book of, of the Bible and Deuteronomy, I noticed how many times Moshe Rabbeinu or Teacher Moses warned the Jewish people about the ill effects of material wealth. And he said to them, you'll come into the land of Israel, and there you will become wealthy. You'll have a lot of possessions. And you'll turn around and you'll say, I was the one who produced all of this wealth. I was the one who did it. And Moses warned them, and he says, don't say that. It wasn't by your own power and by your own strength. But it was with Hashem's assistance. And uh, if that was a problem going back generations, it's certainly a problem today, because mankind has mastered this world technologically, scientifically, when it comes to medicine. We have mastered this world, and we think that we are the ones who are in charge. We are the masters of our own destiny. And we should never forget that it is Hashem who is there. And we see so often that, uh, and this is brought out by the commentators that I quote, that the Jewish people would become powerful, they would become wealthy, they would turn their backs on Hashem, and then there would be some type of a tragedy. And, of course, we should never ask for poverty. Poverty is an incredible test. But sometimes we've seen some of the greatest scholars and some of the greatest generations of Judaism were at a time that the Jewish people were not necessarily wealthy and they didn't have the type of affluence that that we have today. The other point I make is that uh, although we have such modern technologies and the claim is that they free us up and that they give us free time to spend with our families, that this, in fact, is a myth. And they just take time from us. And therefore, we have to make sure that we set aside time every single day for our families and, of course, for Jewish learning. And that's not just when we're in school, but but throughout our lives. Uh, so we shouldn't allow all of our wealth and all of our affluence to, to set us aside and to, to take us aside from, from Hashem and from His Torah. We've
0: got time for one last question. These type of answers that Rabbi Matthew is giving us to the questions that I'm asking, this is what the book is full of. So if some of these are topics that we've been discussing on the radio have piqued your interest, there's many, many more times pages in the book than half an hour slots that we can fill on the radio with this type of wisdom distilled onto the page and very, very accessible in beautifully, clearly written English. What points, That's the last question I have for you, what points of Torah life would you like to share with our listeners? Lessons that you believe everyone needs to hear and think about and implement in their lives. I know there are most probably many, but just a few.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, one issue that I really deal with, uh, it has an essay dedicated to it, is Darius Is It's behaving like a mensch, having ethics, having respect for other people, having respect for other people's time. I think that this is something that uh, is really deteriorating in our society and is something that we have to concentrate on. Another, and this is really the theme of the book, is is wisdom. You know, there's a lot of information out there. The Internet is full of information. You can Google anything. But that's not necessarily wisdom. That's information. We have to be able to distill. We have to be able to make a a distinction between that which is just information and that which is wisdom. We need uh, filters for that and uh, one has to find an authentic true torah teacher that is going to teach you how exactly to distill that information because there's just so much unauthentic information and and fake news out there so that i think is another very important uh aspect and uh the one is clarity so perhaps the last one that i of of uh, most important is clarity Often, when it comes to Judaism, people are very, very confused. They don't know whether this is a law, whether this is a custom, whether this is a mitzvah. It's all presented in one big mess. And Judaism is very systematic. We have the Mishnah that's divided up perfectly the Code of Jewish Law, the Talmud. There has to be a clarity. Everything has to come across clearly. We have to work our way through the fog and uh, all of the, the the fact that we're muddled up and we're not clear. And that's something that I've really tried to put across in the book. It took a long time to edit, but to make sure that it was clear, that people understood very clearly what I was trying to get across and that the message would, would resonate with them, and that they, they wouldn't be left with this um, lack of clarity.
0: Everyone's listening, who's just, anyone who's just tuned in recently in the last few minutes, we've been speaking to Rabbi Matthew Niebeberg from Cape Town, who's just published a book called Wisdom from the South, an eclectic collection of essays on the weekly Torah portion. These book shows are Loaded up as podcasts on our website, so you can during the course of the weekend that will happen. You can go onto the website if you missed the whole interview. You can listen to the interview from the beginning. The book is available in the in the Coloured Bookshop in Johannesburg, and it's, it's been an absolute ple- pleasure uh talking to you, Robert Matthew, about your book. The ideas in the book it is very clear. When you read, when I read any of the essays, the clarity sparkles. It's like a crystal, it's like a crystal, it's crystal clear. And the, the the idea of wisdom from the South is very, very much there on every single page. The wisdom that you've put across from 18 years of writing your essays, it's all there. Thank you for your time. I hope that our interview will bring this book to a much wider readership and that a lot more people will be able to share in the wisdom from the south that you've put across so beautifully on the page. And Mazel Tov, because it's a personal achievement, it's a huge it's a huge it's a huge uh goal, it's a huge achievement to publish the book. And a book of such a good quality and thank you, thank you for your time thank you for contributing to the Torah literature of South Africa and for all the work that you do in Cape Town thank you.
1: Thank you Stephen, I really appreciate your time and uh, and God bless and good job to you and to your listeners.
0: Thank you That was the book Wisdom from the South and it was an inspirational interview speaking to person who has clear visions and has ability to put all that across with the clarity on the page. The next two books that I'm going to talk about are two very, very topical books and they both deal with the same issue. They're both American books and they deal with the issue of race. One is a novel, the other is a, almost a family history and both of them have made huge waves in around the world, uh, especially around the idea of race relations in America. And uh, both of them have received a huge amount of publicity and acclaim. The first one we're going to look at is called The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. It's published in South Africa and in the UK by Walker Books. And it has been a bestseller on the New York Times Young Adult Bestseller Lists. It's already moved into movie production. And it's a book that is not only very, very topical, but it's a book that has resonated with a very, very wide readership. And even though it's called a young adult novel in terms of classification within the publishing industry it is one of those books that have crossover power and I think many many adults read the, will read the book as well and come away enriched the author Angie Thomas It's a short biography. She was born, raised, and still resides in Jackson in Mississippi. She's a former teen rapper whose greatest accomplishment was having an article about her in Write On magazine. She has a BFA in creative writing and is a winner of the inaugural Walter Dean Myers grant in 2015, awarded by We Need Diverse Books. The Hate you Give is her first novel, and... It has made a huge, huge, huge impact. 16-year-old Star, that's her name, Star, S-T-A-R-R, lives in two worlds, the poor black neighborhood where she was born and raised, and her posh, majority white, high school in the suburbs. The uneasy balance between them is shattered when Star is the only witness to the fatal shooting of her unarmed best friend, Khalil by a police officer. Now what Starr says could destroy her community, it could also get her killed. And to put the book in its context, it's the type of book that explains the anger in America at the police brutality that is experienced by the African-American segment of the American population I think it's an important thing to read the author's note just to create a sense of why she wrote the book so this is from the author's note I remember the first time I saw Emmett Lewis Till I couldn't have been more than eight years old I came across his photo in a jet magazine that marked the anniversary of his death at the time I was convinced he wasn't real or at least that he wasn't a person What was supposed to be his face was mutilated beyond recognition. He looked more like a prop from a movie to me, a monster from some over-the-top horror flick. But he was a person, a boy, and his story was a cautionary tale. Even for a young girl in Mississippi, who was born more than three decades after he died. Know your worth, my mom would say, but always know that not everyone values you as much as I do. Still... Emmett Lewis-Till wasn't real to me. There was no way I'd ever have to worry about anything like that happening to me or someone I knew. Things had changed, even in Mississippi, which is unfortunately more known for its racism than anything else. Nobody ever told me to sit on the back of the bus or make me drink from a coloured fountain. I never saw a Ku Klux Klan member. I had never been called a nigger. Emmett and the stories of his time were history. The present had its own problems. I grew up in a neighborhood that's notorious for all the wrong reasons. Drug dealers, shootings, crime, insert other ghetto stereotypes, right here. I wasn't worried about the Ku Klux Klan wandering onto my street. I was more worried about the gunshots I heard at night. Yet while those things were daily threats, they were slightly outweighed by the good. The things you wouldn't see unless you lived here. My neighbors were family. The neighbourhood drug dealer was a superhero who gave the kids money for snacks and beat up paedophiles who tried to snatch little girls off the street. The cops could be superheroes too, but I was taught at a young age to be mindful around them. So were my friends. We'd all heard stories, and though they didn't come with mutilated photos, they were realer than Emmett. Reading from the author's notes of a book called The Hate You Give, it's by Angie Thomas. It's about a black girl in America who is the sole witness to a white police shooting her one of her best friends, a young black teenager. This is the author's notes. But just like Emmett, I remember the first time I saw the video of Oscar Grant. I was a transfer student in my first year at the fine arts college I'd later graduate from. It was in a nicer part of town than where I lived, but only 10 minutes away from it, and it was very, very white. The majority of the time, I was the only black student in my creative writing classes. I did everything I could so no one would label me as the black girl from the hood. I would leave home blasting Tupac. But by the time I arrived to pick up a friend, I was listening to the Jonas Brothers. I kept quiet whenever race came up in discussions, despite the glances I'd get because, as the token black girl, I was expected to speak. But Oscar did something to me. Suddenly, Emmett wasn't history. Emmett was still reality. The video was shocking for multiple reasons, one being that someone actually caught it on tape. This was undeniably, this was undeniable evidence. That had never been provided for the stories I'd heard. Yet my classmates, who had never heard such tales, had their own opinions about it. He should have just done what they said. He was resisting. I heard he was an ex con and a drug dealer. He had it coming. Why are people so mad? They were just doing their job. I hate to admit it, but I still remained silent. I was hurt, no doubt, and angry, frustrated, straight up upset. I knew plenty of Oscars. I grew up with them and I was friends with them. This was like being told that they deserved to die. As the unrest took place in Oakland, California, I wondered how my community would react if that happened to one of our Oscars. I also wondered if my classmates would make the same comments if I became an Oscar. I wasn't an ex-con or a drug dealer, but I was from a neighborhood they were afraid to visit. They once jokingly said it was full of criminals, not knowing that's where I lived, until months later. From all of those questions and answers, The Hate You Give was born. This is Angie Thomas writing in her author's note, why wow, she had to write the book The Hate You Give. And after this ad break, we'll be back with a little bit more about this groundbreaking young adult crossover to adult book, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM Before we continue talking about The Hate You Give, I have a copy of People: from, of Wisdom from the South by Rabbi Matthew Liebenberg to give away. Um, to win this book you need to do is send us a WhatsApp with your name and the title of the book that you are reading. And you can win a copy of Wisdom from the South by Rabbi Matthew Liebenberg, an eclectic collection of essays on the Torah Weekly portion. Those numbers are either um, WhatsApp on 061-895-1019 or the 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 SMS nine number is three four five one nine. Get your WhatsApps and your SMSs to us, and uh, we'll be calling the winner from the radio office, the, the studio office later. We're looking at a book called *The Hate You Give* by Angie Thomas. It's in many ways. Uh, Uh, a book that explains why there's so much race anger in America around Black Lives Matter and every time there's police violence against uh, uh, an African-American, why the situation is so volatile they can be right all across America. Angie Thomas has really created a, a fictional character star, a black girl growing up in a black neighborhood but who goes to a white school, who is the sole witness of a police, a white policeman, shooting her black friend Khalil, and all the different issues that Angie Thomas mentions in her author's note find expression through her brilliant fictional writing throughout the book. What I want to do is give you a taste of her her, her writing in Chapter Two when she witnesses this, uh, this police murdering her best friend. So I'm going to read directly from the book. It's very, very powerful. When I was 12, my parents had two talks with me. One was the usual birds and bees. Well, I didn't really get the usual version. My mom, Lisa, is a registered nurse, and she told me what went where and what didn't need to go here, there, or anywhere till I'm grown up. Back then, I doubted anything was going anywhere anyway. While all the other girls sprouted breasts between 6th and 7th grade, my chest was as flat as my back. The other talk was about what to do if a cop stopped me. Mama fussed and told Daddy I was too young for that. He argued that I wasn't too young to get arrested or shot. Star, star, you do whatever they tell you to do, he said. Keep your hands visible. Don't make any sudden moves. Only speak when they speak to you. I knew I must have been serious. Daddy has the biggest mouth of anybody I know, and if he said to be quiet, I needed to be quiet. I hope somebody had that talk with Khalil. He curses under his breath, turns Tupac down, and manoeuvres the impala to the side of the street. We're on Carnation, where most of the houses are abandoned, and half the streetlights are busted. Nobody around here, but us and the cop. Khalil turns off the ignition. Wonder what this fool wants. The officer parks and puts his brights on. I blink to keep from being blinded. I remember something else, Daddy said. If you're with somebody, you'd better hope they don't have nothing on them or both of you all going down. Kay, you don't have anything in the car, do you, I ask. He watches the cop in his side mirror. Nah. The officer approaches the driver's door and taps the window. Khalil cranks the handle to roll it down, as if we weren't blinded enough. The officer beams his watch flashlight in our faces. Licence, registration and proof of insurance. Khalil breaks a rule. He doesn't do what the cop wants. What you pull us over for? Licence, registration and proof of insurance. I said what you pull us over for. Khalil I, please, I plead. Do what he said. Khalil groans and takes his wallet out. The, the officer follows his movements with a flashlight. My heart pounds loudly, but Daddy's instructions echo in my head. Get a good look at the cop's face. If you can remember his badge number, that's even better. With his fla- with the flashlight following Khalil's hands, I make out the numbers on the badge, 115. He's white, mid-30s to early 40s, has a brown buzz cut and a thin scar over his top lip. Khalil hands the officer his papers and license. 115 looks over them. Where are you two coming from tonight? Nanya, Khalil says, meaning none of your business. What you pulled me over for? Your tail light's broken. So you're going to give me a ticket or what? Khalil asks. You know what? Get out the car, smart guy. Man, just give me my ticket. Get out the car. Hands up where I can see them. Khalil gets out with his hands up. 115 yanks him by his arms and pins him against the back door. I fight to find my voice. He didn't mean... Hands on the dashboard, the officer barks at me. Don't move. I'll do what he tells me, but my hands are shaking too much to be still. He pats Khalil down. Okay, smart mouth, let's see what we find on you today. You ain't going to find nothing, Khalil says. 115 pats him down two more times. He turns up empty. Stay here, he tells Khalil. And you, he looks in the window at me. Don't move. That's two pages, one and a half pages after that. The police kills Star's friend, Khalil, precipitating the rest of the novel. That's The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, a very, very powerful young adult, but actually for any age. It's a book that can be read by any age and puts you in the shoes of a person who is experiencing racism directed at her, but... The whole community's expectations are now on her shoulder. And she gives evidence in front of a grand jury about this murder that she's the only witness to. And you can understand how volatile the situation is in in in, in, in the neighborhood where she lives. Very, very powerful. Read the book before it's made into a movie. John Green has... Given a shout out on the front cover of the book, it just says stunning. It's a New York Times bestseller, uh, bestselling novel, and it is a book that really is not only topical, very powerful, and it will make you rethink the issues when, uh, when the headlines in America start to flare again about police brutality and violence. We'll be back with one more book straight after this ad break. Mm-hmm people of the book on 101.9 High FM. In a very, very similar vein, I've got another book. It's called Kaz. It's by Daniel Allen. Cuzz is slang or short for cousin. Michael Allen was 15 when he was arrested. This is a true story. The Hate You Give is a novel. It's obviously a novelization of real events or real issues that are happening in America, but it's a novel. Kaz is a true story. Michael Allen was fifteen when he was arrested in nineteen ninety-five for an attempted carjacking, a crime in which Michael himself was the only person injured. Thanks to the recent Three Strikes and Your Outlaw that had come into action in California in nineteen ninety four, Michael was convicted as an adult and sentenced to twelve years and eight months in prison. Remember he was only fifteen at the time. In nineteen ninety six He went first to a juvenile prison before being moved between notoriously tough prisons around the state for the next 10 years. He was released in 2006 at the age of 26, his first foray into the world as an adult. He went back to prison in 2007 and was released again in 2008, age 28. He was cleared of all parole in June 2009 only to be shot and killed less than a month later, at the age of 29. Kaz is the story of a young man's coming of age, a tender tribute to a life lost, and a devastating analysis of a broken system. Now the author is his cousin, Daniel Allen. Daniel Allen is quite a well-known American intellectual she is a Harvard political theorist, and she also is the James Bryant Conant University Professor at the Department of Government, and she's the director of the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics. Now Edmund J. Safra was a Syrian Jew who obviously donated money for the setting up of this center, Center for Ethics. And she is the director of that as a great American intellectual. She also she has she has published books about ancient Greece, ancient Athens. She's a very, very highly respected Um, American academic and this was her cousin Michael Allen who was killed and she decided to write a book about her cousin and the experience that many African American men go through so if that's since the second half of today's show the theme has been African American experiences Through the written page, The Hate you Give, a novel, and then Cuz, a non-fiction written by a great academic about her cousin's death and the 15 or 14 years experience he had in the criminal justice system in America. Both books are available in the shops. The The Hate You Give came out about April in 2017, and Kaz has just been released into the South African book market right now. And there's one more book, two more books I just want to mention. They're not actually out yet. One is called Hellbent. I might have mentioned it already. It's the third book by Greg Hurwitz centered around a character called Orphan X. The reason I'm going to mention it again, even it's going to be out at the end of the month, it's called Hellbent. It's an unbelievably brilliant it's a thriller. Uh, there is one scene where uh, if you read the book, you're never going to forget that scene for the rest of your life when he stands in a derelict church that has been taken over by the most notorious criminal gang in America. And he's got unarmed and he stands there looking at the head of the gang, a man who's so wicked, he's 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 tattooed the whites of his eyes black and he eats a chocolate bar and he unleashes such such a such a scene of absolute, I don't know, it's, it's a thrilling scene. Um, the reason I mention this is that Greg Hurwitz will be in South Africa later this year. He's coming for the Frontbrook Book Fair and for the Kingsmead Book Fair. And I'm going to do everything. I'll be hell-bent on getting him in the studio because his two books to date, Orphan X and Nowhere Man, have been Absolutely brilliant, brilliant thrillers. Hellbent also is, and so that's something to look forward to. And the other book, well, I've just started reading it. uh, It's going to be available in the shops towards the end of the month. It's called White Chrysanthemums. It's a heavy book. It's about a Korean girl who, in 1943, during World War II, was abducted by Japanese soldier's, On the beach where she was diving, the family, the women in that village would would dive into the sea looking for abalone and they would sell it in the markets. And she was taken by a Japanese soldier and forced to become a comfort girl, which was just one way of saying that the Japanese army institutionalized brothels using women they had kidnapped to 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 service the Japanese soldiers, so this is um, the story. It's a novelization that based on a family story um, of that Korean experience, a Second World War Korean experience. It's a very powerful book. It's really getting a lot of pre-publicity hype. White Chrysanthemums by Mary Lynn Bracht. published by Chatham Windows. It will be available in the shops soon, and I'm also going to try move mountains to interview Mary Lynn Brecht when the book comes out, because it's the type of story that really has the power to make you see history through total, total different. Uh, um, Glasses, and that's today's show. Uh, interview with Robert Matthew Liebenberg about his book Wisdom from the South. Two African American books: one a novel, the Love, the Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, a family memoir, Kaz by Daniel Allen, and then two books to look out for during the course of this month. Greg uh, Hurwitz's Hellbent, and look out for his author tour later this year. And White Chrysanthemum by Mary Lynn Bracht. It will remind you of both the Cart Runner and also Memoirs of a Geisha. um, Very
1: powerful read as well. Until next week, good Shabbos, and keep reading.